I negotiated other things that I looked at as a guaranteed source of income that was over the term of the contract, as opposed to tying myself to an RVU conversion. From Spa Dameron Tenney, it's the Prosperous Doc Podcast. Real stories, real inspiration, real growth. A show for doctors who are ready to improve their overall wellness in every aspect of life. Now here's your host, Shane Tenney. All right, so a couple of years ago, I was working with a client of ours who had finished residency, finished fellowship, and ended up joining a uh, small specialty practice with about four or five partner physicians. And and like a lot of times, he started on a contract that was a two-year employment contract that with the option to become a partner. And things were going well. And when that third year came up, he was approved as a partner and had the expectation of higher income. But what he wasn't anticipating was beginning to see all the things that took place, you know, kind of behind the scenes. And through the partnership meetings and being involved in different type conversations, he realized that he had some real concerns with how the practice was treating patients, in some cases, how they were treating staff. He became aware of some infidelity between one of the other partners and a nurse and began to get really uneasy with the culture taking place, but then just also concerned about the impact on the community if things began to become public. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. The news kind of started leaking because medicine and dentistry are kind of small circles. And then the reputation of the group started to roll down. His referral streams started to dry up. And within about three years, you know, this option with this group that looked so promising, the out started to feel really unstable. And he started wondering what the options are. What's his contract say? What are the implications if he tries to leave? Is his non-compete enforceable? And it was just really stressful and exhausting. You know, maybe some of you have gone through a similar situation or known someone who has. I know it seems almost commonplace nowadays for us to hear from clients that the hospital system they work through is unilaterally adjusting the true-up formula or the bonus formula or holding cash back. Well, of course, everybody else gets paid except the providers. And you just start to wonder, is this fair? What can I do about this? And so we've decided to do a, an episode on contracts, employment contracts. And, and rather than having a contract attorney on the show with me, we decided to be true to form and, and actually talk with one of your colleagues, a good friend of mine, Dr. Jason Goebel. Jason's a physician in the low country of South Carolina and is known locally in his community. He's kind of the godfather of contract negotiations. And so I thought it'd be great to hear his story and pick his brain a little bit on some of the choices and conversations he's been able to have over the years. So Jason, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a privilege. Not every day I get to have the godfather on the show. No, I don't know if I'd go that far, but <laughs> all right, well, provide whatever whatever lack of wisdom I have. All right. Well, that's good. Well, uh, well, let's start with a softball here. Why'd you get into medicine in the first place? I had something I wanted to do since I was a little boy, really. And I didn't grow up in a medicine family. I don't know what initially drove it to me early on, but you know, I liked doing things with my hands. I, I liked really being in control of situations. I liked having having a bearing on helping other people or have, you know, 
have an effect on people's lives long term. And um, I felt that in medicine was something that I could do where I could help people out. I could make people feel better. It's very social. You get a lot of interaction with people. You get to know a lot of people. You get to watch families grow and you get to see people get older. You get older with them. And, you know, ultimately I made a decision to go into a specialty where I could put all those things together. I could follow people long term, take care of the same people long term, but also kind of combine some surgery type skills in that together. And so, you know, I chose to go into cardiac electrophysiology and that field to me was the, the perfect hybrid between long-term, long-term care of patients, you know, over a continuum while still being able to do surgical procedures where you see an abrupt benefit, you know, what you do to help these people. And so, so that's, I mean, that's ultimately why I decided to do what I do. Yeah. And so let's just, I guess, jump into kind of the beginning of your journey after finishing fellowship at the Metal University of South Carolina, you were courted by a, a private multi-specialty group. Talk a little bit about that and just kind of what that process was like as you were looking for a job and decided to go there. Well, it, it started in fellowship and the group that I joined has always recruited from within, which really had worked very well because instead of looking for recruiters, they purely went by experience and word of mouth and getting people who other fellows had trained with, who they, they had worked many years with side by side and knew how they practiced. They knew their personalities. They knew if they'd be somebody they liked to work with. And that started probably two years before the end of my fellowship. One of the guys who was a year ahead of me, who does a little bit different specialty, but within cardiology, he always told me, he's like, you're going to move to Myrtle Beach. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> I don't want to go to Myrtle Beach. Growing up in the Carolinas, I was like, that's where I go for spring break. And uh, I've grown way beyond that now. And I don't think that's where I'm going. He said, yeah, we'll see. My wife also said, we're not going to Myrtle Beach. I decided to keep my mind open. And the time came to start interviewing. I knew I wanted to be on the coast of the Carolinas. I went and looked at four or five different practices. Honestly, you go to a practice and you meet these people, a lot of whom you've talked to on the phone before. You might not know yet, but they are. And then some other people who got there before you, but you trained with, and you realize, you know, this is a really good group of people, and it's a really good community, and there's a huge need, which is very, very important in terms of a contract and how you negotiate a contract. But I knew there was a big need for me to go there, and I felt like the niche there was better than probably anywhere else I was looking by far. And ultimately, my buddy was right, and I ended up joining that practice, and, and it really was not a difficult decision at all. I just felt like I belonged there. I felt like they were good people to work with. It has always been a great decision. I'm happy where I am and hope to never leave here until I retire. I actually want to pick up on something that you just touched on, which is since we're talking about contracts and you just mentioned, you know, there was a need here. Talk a little bit about the importance of understanding the need in the community for your specialty, you know, as we kind of lead into this topic of contracts. Well, I think there's probably two big issues. First of all, just like any kind of market, I think your your value is determined by the need and the supply. For example, there's other communities in the Carolinas that are great places to live, and they're fairly saturated with physicians. It's not that you can't go to a job in those locations, but if you go to a job in those locations, 
you may get a good contract up front, but at some point you have to start paying your own way. And if you go to a place where there's not enough demand and you're fighting for volume and you're fighting for patience, it makes your job much more stressful. It makes the reassurance of having long-term financial security and knowing you have a long-term revenue stream where you can move and raise your family and build a house and do all those things. It makes it a lot better to go to a community where you know there's a need for you. And the greater the need in that community and the longer they look, the higher the demand is, the supply is unchanged. And so the reimbursement for what you get paid to go to that community typically will be better. If you go to a community where there's there's 10 other people who do what you do and you're simply trying to take a piece of a pie that's been divided amongst a lot of people, you know, obviously your salary in that job is going to be much less. Now, you may have a lot less work, so you may have a better quality of life, and that may be what's most important. But, you know, the other thing is in terms of both a private practice and working for a healthcare system, either one, an employment model, bring in a service line that no one has had before and bring in procedures or a certain skill set that no one has had before can provide a significant job opportunity that you may not be able to find in another community. Yeah, all really good points. I mean, even even before you get into the technical intricacies of a contract, just from a business aspect, the laws of supply and demand. If you have something unique, then there will be more demand there. And so in joining the group where you started, I imagine they had an employment contract for you. And and if memory serves, you started on an employment basis and then, you know, had the opportunity to consider partnership. Talk a little bit about that and then kind of the, the work that you did to just look at that contract. You know, I was given a, a fairly simple five-page contract and it was a two-year term. It was a two-year guarantee. It was non-declining. It was the same number. It was the same salary every year. It was not based on productivity. They had an understanding, which I think is really important, especially when you're trying to start an entirely new service line and the healthcare system has never been done before. It's going to start slow. And so I felt good security in the fact that they were going to guarantee me salary income regardless of you know what my productivity was coming out of the gate. The contract they gave me, it had been the same way for years and years and years. So my contract read exactly like everyone else's in the practice did, except for the number. The way my contract was is after two years, after your guarantee, then you would then be allowed to make partner if you know you wanted to become a partner. And that partnership was purely based on the practice itself. It didn't involve real estate. It didn't involve anything else. It didn't involve the building that we were in. And the practice was a multi-specialty practice. So I joined a practice with non-interventional cardiologists, with interventional cardiologists, and with gastroenterologists. And that practice over time had kind of evolved. It was previously a multi-special practice that had primary care. Over time, primary care had kind of merged out of the practice as some of the partners had retired. And did you have, you said the contract was fairly simple coming from the group. Did you have an attorney look at it? Yes. Yep. Absolutely. I had an attorney look at it and really what the attorney provided for me was just making sure I, it really wasn't so much advice as it was, they looked at the contract and made sure that I understood the verbiage in the contract and what that meant. 
I was not so concerned about the non-compete in my first contract, but we'll talk about that later. That becomes very important. I wasn't so concerned about that, primarily because I trusted the people who I was joining, which is sometimes very hard to do. And you really don't know until you really, I mean, a lack of better terms, in bed with these people, you know, living, living with them every day. But I had an attorney look at it. I think I paid maybe $1,200 to have my contract reviewed. To be honest with you, they didn't really provide any recommendations for anything to change in the contract. They just wanted me to be very clear as to what the contract involved. And I did. And, you know, one piece of advice on that is I used a local attorney. And I think if you're going to a big city, you know, like Atlanta or Charlotte or, or, or New York or, or Dallas or something like that, I think that's a little less of an issue. But when you're in a smaller town, everybody knows everyone. And, you know, when you're trying to figure out what best to do, you got to make sure that whoever you're using has your best interest in mind. And when when they play golf with the other partners and everything else, you know, they, they just kind of say, yeah, this is what the contract says. That was kind of my first attorney experience with a contract. And so to your point, in that case, you didn't change anything. You didn't make any requests, but at least you went in more educated, understanding what the ramifications were. I did. And, and you know, another thing, and there's obviously, you know, there's always folds to the story, but going in, it was made very clear to me how much I was getting paid versus how much everyone else in the practice was paid. So I knew how much every partner in the practice outside of their quarterly bonuses, which I knew about what those were too. And I knew how those were distributed and how that was determined, but I actually knew how much all the partners in the practice were making, which in a lot of ways kind of establishes what the fair market value of that contract is, at least within that practice. Was that because you you thought to ask, or was that just the culture of transparency that you were joining? That was the culture, and they paid okay. me. They paid me well compared to basically started me at what the head of the practice was making. Though I obviously did not have a, I didn't have a productivity bonus or anything like that. But I guess to your first point about just kind of uh, knowing the the supply and demand in that market. Now, the you ended up not moving into a partnership role there. Talk a little bit about that and then kind of what you began to realize as time progressed there. Over time, my specific situation was I was very, very quickly, I became quite busy. And, you know, in the field of electrophysiology, the the procedural reimbursement for practice is very good if it's billed appropriately. And I saw myself doing a lot of procedures and generating a lot of revenue. And I was going to meetings and being told, you know, it's costing us money to pay you this. And, you know, the numbers didn't make sense to me. And on top of that, it seemed to me like, you know, our goal as a practice should be to be as profitable as possible while focusing on, you know, taking care of patients the way they're supposed to be taken care of. And, you know, Every, I forgot what it was, every five days or six days or something like that, I was put on general cardiology call and I would spend my time seeing consults for general cardiology, half of which was unfunded while taking me out of the lab, which is where I generate revenue for a practice, just to kind of relieve the burden of call on the other partners. And, you know, that that didn't make a lot of sense to me. I was more than willing to take all of the call every day for my specific service line for all, you know, heart rhythm issues 
And I felt like I could generate a lot more money for the practice doing that. Because when I, when I looked at what was billed, let's just assume billed and not collected. But if I just looked at what was billed on a day on call versus what I build doing procedures, the difference was four and fivefold different. And when I was doing procedures, the majority of what I did was all covered by either Medicare or private pay insurance. Whereas when I was on call, half of what I was doing was, you know, was unfunded and non-reimbursable. Now, Jason, I know your group, like most private practices around the country, was approached regularly by the the local hospital, you know, asking if they wanted to be bought out or merged in or whatever you want to call it. And at some point that, I know that rubs against the grain of all independent docs out there, but at some point, I think they caught your ear and you, you started listening to their message. Talk a little bit about what you started to see that made you think that perhaps being part of the healthcare system would in fact be better for you, your family, your patients than staying with the practice. Well, in the, in the practice model that I, was, that I was in, the bonuses were distributed evenly amongst all the partners. And there were, and not because of a difference in work ethic or anything like that, but there's simply intrinsic differences with job descriptions of different fields within cardiology of how much you have to work. And, you know, the people who are working four and a half days a week, nine to five, were getting the same bonus as the people who are working 80 hours a week. And I just didn't think that that was going to be long-term the right thing for me. And I felt that I was generating a substantial revenue stream for the practice, but was not being really fairly reimbursed long-term for what I was generating in revenue. I mean, I would have felt more comfortable in a practice model where the bonus is determined based on your individual productivity and your individual overhead versus splitting the profit of the entire practice. And that's just a difference of opinions. But that was my thought on it. And I think also there was an overall I hate to put it this way, but I think there was an overall lack of understanding of really what was generating the revenue for the practice. And because of that, it made it where I felt that in my practice, I was not really recognized as the person who was generating a a substantial revenue stream and almost was a burden to the practice because of what they were paying. And I was like, this is just not going to work long term. And at the same time, the hospital saw the revenue stream that I was bringing in because of, you know, 80% of the productivity that I generate is generated in the hospital, not in the office. And I think, A, they didn't want me to leave because they realized the value and what they were getting in a new service line that they didn't previously have. And I think they all also realized in reality, compared to other physicians doing what I was doing with the volume that I was doing, what they felt I should be fairly paid. And those numbers were substantially different than what I was being paid in practice. And I, I did not want to work for the hospital. You know, there was, like anywhere else, there was always the constant battle between private practice and the hospital and who's pushing who around. And there had in the past been, some, been bad blood with my practice and the hospital. And everybody had kind of dug their feet in saying that, you know, basically under no circumstance am I ever going to work, you know, for that hospital. And so no one really ever opened their eyes to an employment model. But I knew that 
it was not sustainable for me to keep working like I was doing, getting paid what I was getting paid. And my family was suffering. I have a very good marriage with two children that I care everything about. That wasn't falling apart or anything like that, but I was just never at home. I was never at home. I was killing myself. And when you start to look up some st- some simple numbers, I felt like I was getting paid you know, a third of what I really should be getting, or at least half. And so then I looked at, because again, I didn't really want to go to work for the hospital. I want to remain independent. I wanted to maintain my leverage, which is very important. I looked at going into private practice by myself. And I called a colleague of mine who would be in the exact same situation, a standalone, subspecialty cardiologist in another town in the Carolinas, who was kind of the only show in town for the most part for what he did. And he told me, he said, you know, I've, I've considered going to work for the healthcare system as well, six or seven times. But, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid fifties and I've survived this long and I'm just not going to do it. And now actually I think he's employed. That, this, this, that was eight years ago, but I think now at about 60, I think he's employed. But I just, I felt like I wasn't, I really wasn't educated enough to be able to run my own business and run my own practice and do so effectively but while minimizing overhead. I got scared of all the billing and how to handle the contract negotiations with insurance companies and realized that really the only way to do it would be to join a different practice, which I didn't want to do because I love the partners who I had. I didn't want to be in anyone else's group. And we were the big premier group in town. The only other option was to work for one of the healthcare systems. And so I started talking to the hospital and I did it with complete open disclosure too, which I think is really important because I knew that These guys who were going to be my partners were all of a sudden in a practice that wasn't affiliated with me, and it would be very easy for them, for me to go work for the hospital and them say, well, we're just going to hire another electrophysiologist. And then all of a sudden, I've got no one to send me volume, and an electrophysiologist can't survive without cardiologists that support them. So before I even went to the hospital, I told them that I just... I had a hard time understanding how the numbers were working in the practice and it wasn't clear to me. And I felt like I can provide better service working for the hospital because of the way overhead works and the way support staff works. And at that point, I started talking to the hospital. And you mentioned earlier just the non-compete. You had a non-compete in your contract, but it never really became an issue because of the the openness with which you approach the conversation. Is that what you would say? Yeah, they, you know, and, and that was one of the, you know, one of the first things that I brought up with them because I knew that that would be an issue. And part of this, I think, is based on your track record. So, you know, I think they appreciated me. You know, they, they ultimately said, you know, and the practice I joined was very, very family oriented. You know, my first obligation was to my family and what was best for my family. And they openly allowed me to to go talk to the hospital. Yeah. So the art of diplomacy plays in here, too, a little bit. Now, uh, let's shift gears and talk a little bit about, you know, negotiating an employment contract with the hospital system. That's a little different animal, isn't it? Don't go in there trying to squash, you know, squash a bug that's a whole lot bigger than you are, because ultimately, whether it's a practice or whether it's a healthcare system, they still they have a lot more power than you have. And they usually have a lot more money than you have to fight legal battles. So the first thing I did was uh, figure out the person who makes the decisions about the contract. 
And I got to know him well. I was always really good to him. I was really open with him and kind of befriended him more more so before I even started negotiating a contract. I also worked with a physician recruiter that was employed by the hospital to try to get her, get to know her well and, and honestly to try to get as much information as I could. That knowledge of knowing all the facts is really where your leverage comes from. They then presented me with a contract, which was a, a boilerplate contract for the healthcare system. It had some specifics in there for me. And the contract was 22 pages long in about size eight font. So I read through the entire contract from front to back, which is the first thing I'll tell you. I think you have to be an idiot to sign any contract without reading every single thing that's in the contract. And then I went through the contract and figured out things that I thought were points of negotiation. I also, you know, the whole entire time, you've got to think of what your bailout strategy is. And so you have to look at the contract as in terms of how can I get out of the contract? And that's probably more important than anything that's actually in the contract. Because if you get into an agreement and you either can't get out of it, or if you get out of it, you get crucified trying to get out of it and you can no longer provide for your family, then the contract's worthless. So I I looked at my contract and I figured out, you know, at least to me, without, without independent counsel or anything like that, what were the parts of contract that I felt were too restrictive that could keep me from getting out of the contract? What were the parts of the contract that may be negotiable? And we're not talking about just money. We're talking about how staff is allocated. Will they provide mid-level support for you? How is my call going to be structured? What's my responsibility of being on call? And then ultimately, obviously, how you're paid in the in, in the RVU model. And once I figured out what I thought were you know the key points, I, I, instead of kind of filtering down what are the main things to try to negotiate, I said, all right, I'm just going to hit all these points and get the VP to explain to me why is the non-compete radius, why is it 14 miles? Why are these numbers like they are? And then I found out that some of the things they would simply change. They're like, well, that's just the way we always do it. And some of the things were surprisingly easy to get them to change if you had a good rational reason for doing it. Because, you know, I think the, the important thing to remember is no, one's, no one is trying to hose you in your contract. I mean, they want to employ you. You know, it's in their best interest to get you to sign the contract. So they're not, they're not trying to, you know, they're not trying to screw you. They're trying to simply protect their interest. And, and you have to understand in, in this discussion is it's a bipartisan decision to come up with a piece of paperwork to sign. And I found out that some things on there that I really didn't like, they're like, okay, yeah, we'll change that. Which is really surprising working for a, a huge corporation. And then other things figure out that there is no way they're going to change that. And you've got to figure out the personality of the person that you're negotiating with and really figure out, are they very upfront? Are they tongue in cheek? Are they poker face? And trying to figure out what things you're wasting your time trying to argue about, because you don't want to be like, man, this guy complains about everything on the contract. And once you figure out things that you think that they may have some give on, then work on those and then maybe pick two things you think they're not going to give on and fight for those and the other things simply accept. 
because that's just some they're not going to change everything to suit you because why would they do that it doesn't protect them right uh, yeah great takeaways here which are even before you have an attorney looking at the contract read through it yourself and just write question marks next to the things you don't understand and then without any animosity just go in and ask for explanations and you're you're able to get a a fair amount of work done just with that without paying a lawyer the hourly rate to review the paper themselves. What my issue with it was, and one thing I think is really important with negotiation is don't bring up that you don't like it. Come up with a solution that's reasonable because it has to be reasonable. If it's not reasonable, you're wasting your time. And then I also went through the contract and highlighted the things that I thought were the things that could get me in trouble, the things that if something happened, could make me lose my job, could allow them to basically terminate my contract without me having any control because I thought those are the things that were the big issues. And ultimately, that's really what the attorney ended up pointing out. But the thing is, is if you read the entire contract more than once, read the entire contract twice, you're going to find a lot of those things yourself. And like you said, save yourself a lot of attorney fees in reviewing a contract because my first contract I didn't pay a lot of attorney fees for my second contract. I paid a lot of attorney fees for, but it was a big contract that was a big deal long term. Now, you brought up a topic that I know is always a point of confusion or often a point of confusion in in contracts. And that's just the the rate, the RVU formula. You know, there's there's always a, a number in there that's, you know, seems to have been concocted in the dark of night or with smoke and mirrors. And it's hard to know where that came from. Is it fair? Is it not fair? How do I know the difference? Is that a point that can be negotiated or should I focus on the other things? What's been your experience with RVU formulas and and rates? Well, so first of all, so the the contract that I signed was purely an RVU contract. Now, there was a salary guarantee for two years, exactly like I had in private practice. It was There was nothing deducted out of that if you didn't meet your productivity, that type of thing. And then after after two years, you you were on your own. My, my contract was exclusively RVU, except for some things that were negotiated into it, which we can talk about. But it wasn't a hybrid model. You see a lot of these practices where, you know, you may maybe 75% of your, of your income is RVU. And then part of it is based on some other type of productivity model or overhead or that type of thing. So all I was really having to negotiate was the RVU. And I found, and I've found twice now after doing two of these with the same healthcare system, there is definitely some play in the range for what that RVU is. The thing that is incredibly difficult is to figure out what the RVU number for you and your circumstance should be. And I think that that is probably the most valuable thing to be able to figure out in negotiating a contract. Those numbers are very protected. The contract actually has verbiage in it that if you discuss your RVUs, what your conversion is, that it's a it's an offense that's fireable, and that is actually in the contract. And the problem with that is that protects that protects who you're negotiating with because it makes it hard for you to figure out, well, what are the other guys making? And their job descriptions are not the same, so the RVU is going to be different. You know, what I did was, I, and I spent... I spent probably a month trying to figure out what my RVU conversion should be. 
And I started with just talking to people. I started by calling all my friends in the same specialty, in the same region. And if they would tell me, tell me what they were getting paid for RVU. And that kind of gave me a range. The thing that's important with that, though, is if their reimbursement bottle had other things factored into it, it makes the RVU conversion very different. And I think at least with the system that I'm in, and I doubt that it would be any different in any other system, is what it really comes down to is whoever you're negotiating with has a range of what they're willing to pay you for an average amount of work. And they may come up with that number with a lot of different things. Let's say they're going to pay you $500,000. Well, they may give you a contract that says we give you 50. They, they expect you to, and they in their head expect you to do 10,000 RVUs. They may give you a contract that says we're going to give you $50 an RVU and that's how you're going to be paid. They may also give you a contract that says we're going to give you $44 an RVU. You're going to work 10,000 you know, RVUs, but we're going to pay you $30,000 for call and we're going to pay you a $30,000 directorship. And guess what? They're still paying you $500,000. And so I think that's important in understanding what that number is. But then after I talked to other people to figure out kind of what they were making, then basically I, I consulted Mr. Google and I went online. I found what the big companies were that did fair market values. I think it's it's crazy not to spend a little bit of money to try to get the facts straight so you can go into a negotiation with hard facts and not emotion and what you think you're worth. And I called six companies and all six companies that I called have contracts with the corporation I work for and said they could not provide me a fair market value analysis because it would be a conflict of their interests. And so that made it that made it very difficult. What I ultimately ended up doing was the physician liaison who was in charge of physician recruitment, I befriended her enough to get an idea from her what their range in RVU that they were willing to pay. And I don't know how I got that information, but but that helped. And then I I went online and I did research about so what makes what determines what an RVU is. And there's actually a lot of PowerPoint presentations that are online that you can look up that really tells you how a fair market value analysis for your pay is determined because the issue is not the RVU. The issue is what are you going to be making doing the work you're going to be doing? And you figure out that, you know, you start with getting MGA, MGMA numbers, you get SGMA numbers, and SGMA numbers are, at least for the Southeast, higher than MGMA numbers. They basically give you a chart, and the chart gives the, they give percentiles. They say this is 25 percentile, this is 50 percentile, this is 75 percentile, and this is 95 percentile for median RVUs for physicians and what they're paid. And then the other thing to remember is that the RVUs are different if you're in an employed model than if you're in a private practice model, which I think a lot of people are probably not aware of that. I don't know if they pay you a little bit extra because you're you're giving up some of your autonomy in some situations. I didn't in my situation, but which is about leverage. But your 
in an employed model, the typical RVU conversion was about $4 per RVU higher than in a private practice model across the board, no matter where you were. And then the other thing was, is the RVU conversions for cardiology are different regionally. And, you know, cardiologists in the Southwest on average had a little bit higher RVU conversion than everywhere, everywhere else in the country. But in the, in the Southeast, they were number two. And so I knew that whatever numbers they had fallen in 50 percentile, the numbers should be a little bit higher than that because they're doing a nationwide, you know, RVU average. And then you have to look at the RVUs in terms of what your productivity is going to be. And this part makes absolutely no sense. And that is that a person who generates less RVUs as a general rule has a higher RVU conversion ratio than someone who is very busy. So when you look at those charts and let's say, you know, you're, you're very busy, let's say that, that the average electrophysiologist does 10,000 RVUs a year and you say, well, I'm going to be doing 18,000 RVUs a year. You say, well, then you look at the charts and look at what 90 percentile for productivity for an EP is, and that answers about 18,000. And you say, well, then I should be getting the 90 percentile for RVU conversion. And that is actually not the truth. That actually makes your RVU conversion lower, which, you know, to me, when you have, when your overhead is relatively fixed and your revenue stream is higher, your accounts receivable are higher, it would make sense in the private practice world that you're going to get a greater pay. So that number should be higher. But the simple fact, it is, it is not. I don't know why that's how it is. But so don't go to the table negotiating, say, well, I'm so busy, I'm going to do all these numbers, so my RVU conversion should be higher. In that situation, it was educational to me because I realized that I should be very happy if I'm going to do a, a high volume, which I do, to get 50 percentile RVU because based on the typical RVU model for MGMA and SGMA, I should probably be at 30 percentile for an RVU conversion. And then... The other thing is looking at the job description because the job description determines your fair market value. And so if you're in a place like I am where you take call all the time and you know you have more responsibility when you're home away from work, then your RVU conversion should be higher. If you're having to cover multiple hospitals, your RVU conversion should be higher. If the typical amount of calls that you get on call is busier than another program, your RVU conversion should be higher. If your payer mix is bad, your RVU should be lower. If your payer mix is high, because a lot of people don't think about that, you just think, well, I get RVUs for the procedures I do. Well, the hospital can't pay you or anybody else can't pay you if they don't get reimbursed. So if you have a bad payer mix, your RVU conversion is lower. And so I wrote down all those facts and said, all right, well, this is what's unique about my job opportunity. You know, in my particular situation, I work at one hospital, but I get calls from four different emergency rooms at different hospital systems. I'm on call a lot. And so because I'm on call a lot, that increases, you know, the conversion for what you should get. I look at, you know, how you utilize space. How much does it, how much does it take for the hospital to get you to generate the revenue that you do in four and a half days in terms of the staff that they have to bring, if you can prove efficiency, all that are points of negotiation that you can use as leverage to change your RVU conversion. So Jason, I guess to maybe 
bring us closer to home on the topic. You've mentioned a couple of times just the work that you need an attorney to do ultimately with a contract. I think you've laid out a great roadmap for folks that are needing to look at a contract, whether coming out of fellowship or changing jobs or whatever. There's a lot you can do yourself. And there's a lot of common sense you can bring to it. At the end of the day, you got to hire an attorney. So what are your tips about working with an attorney to make sure you've got somebody who's knowledgeable, somebody who doesn't have a conflict, make sure to keep the cost you know, as, as reasonable as possible? I think, first of all, you look through the contract and, and like we discussed, you, you find the issues that you have with the contract. And I think you need to go right up front. And remember, you're paying by the hour to talk to an attorney. So you should have bullet points written down like, these are my points you know, with the contract. And in fact, just email it to them. You don't have to talk about it. They know they know about it a lot better than you do. Just email them the points that you think in their contract. You know, they're going to bill you 20 minutes for reading the email, but it's better than going on and on and on about all these different things over the phone. And then make sure there's a lot of language, especially when you get in these big corporations in these contracts that to me, I, I, I don't understand and having them outline that. And then the other thing that's important is the legality of some of the terms in the contract, the legality of the non-compete. How enforceable is this non-compete? And make sure that the attorney understands your situation and what your bailout plan would be if you are to leave. And knowing what that plan would be, does this contract allow you to do what your plan B would be if you have to get out of the contract? I had them do that. I had them go through the points you know, that I had you know, concerns with the contract. My first contract with the healthcare system, I actually did have the attorney reach out to the attorneys for the corporation, which obviously had to pay to do that. And because of all the peculiarities in the contract, I think I spent $5,000 on attorney fees, which was worth every penny with my contract, which helped me negotiate my big concerns, which were number one, the non-compete. Number two, if I leave the practice and I'm in a community where I'm the only person providing a service, how can they legally prevent me from practicing, which would involve abandonment of my patients, which I think is against the law? And how can they keep me from soliciting my staff if I leave and want to take people with me who I've trained for years to work with me? And hopefully if they like me, want to go with me when I leave. Those were my biggest things. That is what I spent the entire time of my contract negotiating. The other parts of my contract, I did not use an attorney to negotiate. I simply had them read them and just make sure they pointed out any terms in there that I didn't understand. But what I used an attorney for were the legal grounds for how I would get out of the contract. That's actually all I used the attorney for. But it took a lot of work and time to do that because it took the attorney working with the other attorneys discussing, you know, my concerns. And, and, and it resulted in changing some things in the contract that made the contract much more protective for me. I mean, I got it where because the buyout for my contract was huge. So the buyout for my contract was basically whatever you made in the last year. And, you know, so that was something that was very scary to me. It's not something they were willing to change. But I got it set up where basically if I left, as long as I didn't abandon the hospital and they and again, you know, the goal in this was not to try to fight with the hospital. The the goal was to protect both of our interests. And I knew that I was like, look, if I leave and I go into private practice 
by myself and I'm in the community and I'm still serving your hospital, will you enforce a non-compete against me? And of course they say no, and no means absolutely nothing if it's not in the contract. But they made it clear where verbiage in the contract said that if I provide at least 50% of my services at the hospital that I was at for one year after leaving, that they would not enforce a non-compete against me. And I further protected myself with that because I became involved in a surgery center, which was owned by the same hospital system. And I knew that even if there was something that went wrong with the hospital, that if I did 50% of my procedures and 25% were at the surgery center and 25% were at the hospital, that was still 50% at an affiliated facility, which would still keep me within the protection from my non-compete. And that is what I used an attorney to help me do. That's super. But as we wrap up here, any parting thoughts or suggestions to folks out there struggling with their contract or wondering about it? Any final tips or tricks? When you negotiate your contract, do not become fixated on RVU conversion. Think of the job as your contract as what can I do to guarantee my income if I lose half of my volume and still get the best revenue guarantee long term? I negotiated other things that I looked at as a guaranteed source of income that was over the term of the contract as opposed to tying myself to an RVU conversion. I was going to say helps protect you in the event of a global pandemic as well if the practice is shut down. That's right. Well, Jason, I'm super thankful for your time. I've always enjoyed our conversations together and good cheer and good form even in the even in negotiating contracts. So I believe as the old saying goes, a smart man learns from his own experience and a wise man learns from the experience of others. So hopefully we got a bunch, a lot, much wiser listeners now uh, as a result of your stories. So thanks for your time today. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining in to uh, this episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast. We've got more episodes queued up every other Monday coming out for you. You can find us on all social media channels. And of course, as always, if you have any suggestions, questions, topics for uh, future podcast episodes, you can email me directly, Shane at White Coat Well. Thanks for being with us today. We'll see you back here next time. This episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast is over, but you're not alone on your journey. Spa Dameron Tenney has been helping physicians and dentists prosper through financial planning for over 60 years. To connect with us, visit sdtplanning.com today and take your financial wellness to new levels. Join us on the next episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast.